Hello, and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I'll be talking with my friend John Miller, an award-winning journalist and filmmaker who, as a staff reporter for The Wall Street Journal for 13 years, reported from over 40 countries. John, an American, grew up in Brussels, Belgium. He now lives in Pittsburgh. John's first film, Moundsville, the biography of a classic American town, is now playing on PBS. He currently writes for a number of outlets, including America Magazine, The Jesuit Review. John and I will be discussing the moment we find ourselves in, both here and abroad, the coronavirus pandemic, the economic uncertainty it has unleashed, and the movement against racial injustice that has followed the death of George Floyd. Our conversation was recorded on July 21st. All right, John, well, thank you so much for being with me today for the podcast. I wanted to start with a conversation with you to help ground us in the current moment, because I see you as someone who straddles the dividing line on so much of what we're thinking of these days between the elite, urban, journalistic, international, and the uh, simple everyday experience of most people. And you've based yourself in Pittsburgh, and you seem, from what I've seen, to have a real honest love for the communities surrounding the city and the Appalachian communities that are a little farther out. And I just find that really heartening. (laughs) And so I kind of wanted somebody who could sort of understand the breadth of the picture and not be totally coming from one perspective. I'll I'll take all that as a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I uh, um, am more motivated by uh, curiosity, although I think in a certain way, curiosity is a way of um, approaching people and even of love, of, of you know, wanting to know what other people's circumstances are. And, you know, the kind of economic disintegration of big parts of the country, including the towns around Pittsburgh, where I live, is such an important story in the world. I mean, it, it's what led to the election of, of Donald Trump in 2016. It's what is framing, you know, so much of our politics and uh, big historical shifts in, in world powers, too. I mean, um, deindustrialization has happened in, in Europe too, in Belgium where I'm from, um, as well as in, in this country. And so, you know, knowing or trying to find out what happens now after you know, the factories are closed and after uh, middle class jobs, especially jobs you do with your hands, are disappearing at a uh, very you know, sort of confusing and and, and and it's hard hard to fathom like how how much our, our generation is losing access to these kinds of jobs that are now being automated. Um, you know, if, if if cars and trucks are automated, that's the biggest source of employment for um, American men. Um, anyway, so you have this big crisis point in world history, and so I have been fascinated the last few years by what's actually going to happen in these places, and, and spent um, a year. Visiting one town near Pittsburgh, um, Moundsville, West Virginia, which led to making the uh, documentary movie that's now on on PBS. But you know the 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 main kind of my biggest ideological kind of 
you know, belief is just the process of, uh, of, of, of listening and of doing journalism in a way that is kind of ordered and, and uh, respects kind of the, the craft of it, which is to, you know, talk to a lot of people and to take ownership when you make mistakes and to take mistakes seriously and to, um, you know, tell the story in a way that, you know, let's, let's, um, people kind of come to the front with their, their story, that a story is actually a bunch of contributions from different people and each person owns whatever they're putting into the story and you're just kind of assembling it and ordering it for the reader as opposed to telling the reader what to think about the people that you're you're talking about in the story. Right. One of the things that struck me so much about this moment is like the the near universality of the experience, that it's not just us, it's people all over the world that are, of course, dealing with the pandemic, but also communities all over the world are dealing with the legacies of racial injustice in their own communities. And I wonder what you what you think about that. I We have relatives in Germany and Ireland and England and Scotland and other places, and it's and friends in those communities. And it's been interesting for me to see how, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was inside, everybody was home from school, everybody was home from work. And we were dealing with something that people halfway across the world were also dealing with. Um, and then as the stories of protests in the wake of George Floyd's death started coming out, they weren't just from the United States. They were also from Bristol, England. And um, Belgium and uh, all throughout Europe, you had these communities that were wrangling with, um, in those cases, legacies of imperialism, um, in our case, a legacy of slavery. And I just, I don't know, I want to know what you think about that experience and whether you think people in other places are handling it all with as much um, angst and division as <laughs> America. Uh... It is kind of the world's, um, you know, theater for 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 politics. I mean, people forget that, you know, like the '60s happened here, and um, you know, the, the sexual revolution happened here. Um, abortion was legalized in the United States before elsewhere in in Europe. So it, it's kind of a lodestar for where political winds shift, I think. Um, and so when Germans marched for Black Lives in Berlin and chanted George Floyd, George Floyd's name, they were very much following the U.S. example. And so I think the U.S. is leading the way in a way. Um, I mean, as a journalist, I welcome this kind of shining the light of truth over our history. I mean, it, it's rough and it's clumsy often and, um, you know, things get a, a little muddled, but, you know, imperialism and colonialism are facts and the mistreatment of Africans sold into slavery, it's, it's a fact and it hasn't really properly been been reckoned with. And um, I mean, the more we talk about these things and the more we tell the truth about them, I think the healthier society will be. Um, you know, it's hard to know what to, you know, there's sort of the then what question, like what, what are policies that are actually going to help people have better lives and have equal opportunity to, to work and to education and to healthcare? Um, it gets a little trickier, but it's a good start to, to kind of not rewrite history, but add add to history, like add chapters and add um, understanding. Um, I mean, for example, like when I, I grew up in Brussels, which um, uh, was the the headquarters of a 
a massive colony in Africa, um, the Congo, and it was the personal, for many years, the personal property of King Leopold II, who left it to Belgium when he died. Uh, and there was epic mistreatment of, of native people of uh, who were forced to har- harvest rubber for the burgeoning rubber boom uh, around 1900 with the invention of the automobile. Um, and millions of people died under, under the Belgian regime. And that was not part of my education. I went to a French-speaking Belgian public high school, and we didn't we did not learn about you know what happened in the Congo. And so now, finally, you have I mean it's been happening for years, but now a, a true reckoning with Belgium's colonial past, and they were toppling statues of Leopold II and, and Brussels in the last last month. Um, and so I, I think all that is really healthy. It's like looking at the truth of what happened, and, and you know I, I don't recommend tearing down, you know, half of Brussels just because it happened to have been built with um, money made on, you know, and, and profit from the, from the Congo, but telling the truth about, you know, how Brussels was built and how um, European countries uh, enriched themselves on, you know, the backs of, of African slave trade and, and obviously in the United States too. Um, you know, the truth can only help us understand and can only help us uh, you know, see why, why, why there's inequality today. Right. I keep thinking, you know, all this discussion about rewriting history or revising history. And I think, well, the important thing is making sure that history is told accurately and fully. And if the way that we've been telling our history needs to be reframed or needs to be rewritten because it's been incomplete or because it's been inaccurate, well, then that's a good thing and it should happen. Um, I think a lot of times people fear when they hear rewriting or reframing that um, that really people just want to sort of take a period of history and shove it under the rug and um, and say, well, let's ignore these founders because they they did something bad. Um, I think that would that would also be incomplete and therefore inaccurate. I don't know. I, I feel like we shouldn't be so scared at the idea of rewriting something if we need to portray it more accurately than we have been. My, my favorite saying as a journalist is many things are true at the same time. Right. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I experienced this in researching uh, my, my own family's history um, with slavery for a story I wrote for America Magazine. I have an a ancestor in Texas who enslaved 41 people uh, until 19, sorry, until 1865. And this, this, this farmer is a Texas farmer. This was my great grandmother's grandfather and my great grandmother died in 1990. And so I, as a boy, I I knew her Mm -hmm. and it was her grandfather who Mm -hmm. um, had enslaved people on this farm. And, and that was not something anybody ever talked about until my cousin Cheryl did research and uncovered um, census documents that showed uh, that showed this. And, you know, that's the thing that in white families is easily obscured or glossed over. I mean, it's, it's it feels like a long time ago. Nobody cares. Whereas in African-American families, black families, that is incontrovertibly part of your family history and legacy. And it's not that long ago. And so I think, I mean, the sensitivity towards, you know, the sort of the weight of, of the history of, of black families is something that we should all get on board with. And we should all like, reckon with that and, and reckon with, you know, how this was not that long ago and, and how, um, 
you know, one, one moment leads to another and it's, you know, two lifetimes, two human lifetimes is truly, you know, a, a very short time ago. And so I think, you know, reckoning with, with that immediacy and, and how structurally it's still with us, um, in my mind, that's a sort of non-negotiable starting point. We should all be kind of on board with. I mean, that doesn't demand anything other than just looking at the truth of things. Yeah. And personally, I've, I feel like there are, I feel like a lot of white Americans at least are coming from two different places. I think there are some people, um, especially people who are from the West or the Midwest or the North, who, and especially those who have more recent immigrant ancestors who think, well, that's not my story. I, my family wasn't here then, or my family wasn't in the South. We didn't participate. It's not my story. I would assume they don't feel a sense of guilt about the situation and they just think, um, well, okay, let's move forward. Um, but then I think you also have people and I would be included here who have more of a Southern heritage who know that slavery is part of their legacy. That's the case (laughs) Um, for you too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So my family has been in Maryland since the 1630s and they were (laughs) big landholders and a lot of the big, um, more powerful families for the first couple centuries. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. We have uh, a slaveholding history and I always knew it. I mean, I knew it as a kid. I knew it growing up. It was never a secret, but it wasn't something you talked about. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was like, uh, oh, we don't talk about that. And, um, and, and I get that. I mean, it's hard to reckon with. How do you reckon with that? <laughs> there, uh, it's that's why we're still having these issues because it's hard. Um, but I find that I'm coming from a very different place than, say, my husband, who's from Minnesota and whose family came in the 20th century. You know, they're just different historical experiences. And um, I think for someone like him, it's maybe there wasn't a recognition that it needed to be dealt with. And for me, I feel like, oh, this has been hanging out for a long time. This is a long time coming. I am not surprised. Because, <laughs> um, I don't know, you got to deal with these things that are hanging in the background. So uh, I'm curious, too, you know, you said you didn't learn about King Leopold when you're growing up in school. Did you really not learn about him? Or did you learn about some sort of, like, idealized picture, like, oh, he was a civilized Yeah, he, so he, in, like in Belgium, he, he's famous for... Um, mainly for building modern-day Brussels. So Brussels mm-hmm. in the 19th century, at the start of the century, was a, a small city. And when Belgium became a nation or a country, and a nation-state in 1830, um, it didn't have the kind of grand allure of the European capitals of the day. And so King Leopold II went about, went about changing that and built the big boulevards, the, the Saint-Gontenaire Park, um, kind of the, 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 the Brussels that you recognize on postcards was very much built by King Leopold II. So they, they, in, in Belgium, they call him the Le Roi Bâtisseur, the, the Builder King. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's kind of his, his, his legacy. Yeah, so uh, his legacy is like physical and obvious to, to right. everyone who looks at Brussels. And, and, and I still, I was surprised in the last month to see, um, you know, liberal friends on Facebook, Belgian friends, defending him and, and sort of saying, you know, in the same way that people who love the constitution would defend the, the founding fathers, even though they were, they uh, enslaved people. Um, 
we'll say, well, you know, King Leopold is is one of the people who made Belgium this great place that we all love to live in. Um, so you have that that kind of defense too. Um, and, and I think Belgium is uh, going to um, you know do more to to. There's been a formal apology now from the the current king, and I, I think you'll see. Um, uh, I mean, there's already a lot of, of foreign aid that goes from Belgium to Congo, but mm-hmm. I think you'll see more in terms of recognition of of the past and an ownership of it in, in, a, in a in a healthy way. Yeah, I feel like here in the states, at least for our generation growing up, um, yes, we were taught about slavery, we were taught about Jim Crow. Uh, we were taught about these things, but we were just given a very simplistic version. You know, it's like we had slavery. It was bad. But then we fought a war over it and Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Things were still bad for a while, but then Martin Luther King came and everything got better at the end. You know, <laughs> like it, like it was just a really smoothed over story. So we had a glimpse and we had no depth in my experience. So I think at least we have somewhere to start, <laughs> but there's just so much deeper to go. And I, I think I would think that most Americans, if they really stopped to, to really chew on it, would come to realize that. I don't know. Uh, one thing to back up a minute, one thing I keep thinking of lately, and you haven't had this exact experience, but maybe you would understand what I'm saying. I feel like the situation of the world right now with the pandemic first, to me, feels a lot like when you're pregnant, <laughs> when you're going through a pregnancy where there you're undergoing some like really traumatic, not that pregnancy is always traumatic, but some like really major physical change. It's overwhelming to your system and it it almost like softens you in relation to other difficulties to the point where when something else pops up, you can suddenly get a catharsis from something that otherwise wouldn't really have gotten to you. At least that's happened to me in Mm. my own life, you know, going through a pregnancy or going through a difficult time with not getting any sleep with small kids and all this. And then all of a sudden something pops up that wouldn't have really shaken you. And it does, but it actually leads to a healthy change. Like you address an issue that needs to be addressed because you were in a physical and emotional place where you just had to deal with it. And that's sort of how I feel like the world is right now. Like the world was dealing yeah. with a major pandemic and it sort of softened us to the point where when we had the shock of George Floyd's death, all of a sudden we had to deal with it. Yeah. I, I really like that. Um, the way you articulate that. And, you know, I've, I left the wall street journal and after the 2016 election and I've been, in a kind of place of crisis or sort of mid- midlife journey since then. And um, this year and last, I did the um, Ignatian spiritual exercises over nine months. So it's this, uh, mm-hmm. a course of uh, biblical reading and reflection that kind of takes you through kind of natural spiritual biography. So you start with kind of reverence for being alive and work through, you know, suffering and um, incarnation and, and Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. But one thing, one image that's very present is uh, crisis as as a, a pregnancy. <laughs> like there's a lot oh, of really? like in, in the Psalms huh. that are assigned. There's like 
this language about the groaning, you know, of giving birth and how that's something that, you know, to, to change for the better, you have to go through this labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's very present, um, you know, throughout that, that kind of the, the, Im- the image of, of, of suffering for growth is um, often represented as, as a pregnancy. So it's funny you say mm, that. Interesting. Another topic I wanted to cover in relation to all this is with all the angst, especially that's followed George Floyd's death, there's been this um, pull toward repair. Like there has been this grievous harm done within our culture and we need in some way to to acknowledge it and strive to repair it. And I couldn't help but think as someone who studied German and speaks German and has family in Germany, you know, I couldn't help but think of the concept of collective schuld, like this collective guilt that Germans bear for the Holocaust. And I was listening to something the other day where they brought up the idea of collective guilt and it it was brought up in a very negative light, like, oh no, we should there should be no such thing as collective guilt, you know, and um, it could only be individual. And I just thought, well, what's so wrong (laughs) with the idea of a collective guilt if we're talking about society as a whole? And, um, you know, it's not like societies have never had to deal with their wrongs before. Like we have examples of this, you know, in the way Germany dealt with the Holocaust and the way that South Africa has tried to deal with apartheid. You know, we have examples of this. I am personally really hoping that all of this dialogue leads us to a place where we can figure out a process (laughs) to deal with our society's sins because they're not going to go away. They're still there. They need to actually be dealt with. And the Germans have done, have done a much better job than the Americans have of reckoning with the um, you know tragedy of the Holocaust than we have with reckoning with with slavery. And you know the, the word reparations scares a lot of people. And I had a really mm-hmm. interesting conversation with the African American historian last week, and he, he was recommending widening the scope of repara- reparations. He was saying that like. You know, changing policing models in a way that makes them more community-centered and less threatening to young African Americans is a form of restorative justice and is a form of reparation. And that you know we you know shouldn't worry so much about this idea of you know what you know are are our, our is our tax money going to be used to you know give every African American a ten thousand dollar check? That that's kind of a, a straw man argument that. A better way of looking at it is, you know, what are things that we can change, we can restore in a way that affirms the the humanity of every person and that um, does help erase the or make up for the, the legacy of slavery? Right. One of the best things I've heard in the past couple months was the acknowledgement that there really is nothing can, that can be done to fully repair the situation. There's no, there's no one thing. There's no, like you said, $10,000 check. That's just going to say, okay, check, we're done. You know, it's, it's never going to be enough. (laughs) So we need to start by acknowledging that and just say, but what can we do to make like actual substantial (laughs) legitimate progress? And I absolutely think there needs to be a conversation. I wish the word reparations hasn't become so 
it hasn't become so particular in people's minds. You know, people do think of just writing a check. I think absolutely we need to try to repair what's been done. We need to offer reparation. I don't have any idea what that looks like. I'm sure you don't. And um, I know scholars and activists have a huge number of ideas that would fall into it, but nobody's got the one absolute right answer. Although, you know, you know, you know we all, we all got six, or we all got $1,200 for, um, you know, coping with, with the pandemic. Um, right. Well, you know, think about how, how much worse having <laughs> your family enslaved is compared to a, a disease. I mean, it's, it's right. not a perfect, Absolutely. perfect analogy, but it's, it's, um, I think it's useful right. in this case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing I'll say also, Julie, um, I, I did a story last month about a um, racial equality protest in, in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, the town that is famous for being the setting of, of Groundhog, Bill Murray's movie Groundhog Day. And this is a town of 6,000 people that was had a, a significant Ku Klux Klan membership in the 1990s and had never seen a anti-racism protest until last month in its, in its history. Mm-hmm. And it was organized by a 21-year-old kid on, on, on Snapchat. And, you know, the U.S. election system has taken a beating from Russia and China and other foreign powers interested in, 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 in mucking with our, our election system and, and putting stuff on Facebook that, that divides Americans. Well, here's a great example of this new technology aiding democracy, of helping people organize. And I was really heartened by a conversation with a sheriff in Punxsutawney who was a 33-year-old white guy from the town who, when he heard from the protesters, immediately said, you know, you bet your life I'm going to go out there with a gun and protect your right to assemble and to express your express yourselves. You know, my loyalty is, is to the Constitution, not to any politician. Mm-hmm. And I think there are more Americans like that than you think. And this is somebody who served in the military. He was, um, he's a veteran. Now he's a, a small town sheriff. Uh, and it was very clear that you know, I couldn't even get a read on his politics, but you know, I'm, I'm guessing somewhat conservative, but he really had this clear eyed view of what his job was. And it, it meant like, you know, risking his life to protect people um, marching against racism. And that, that really heartened me that there's still a core of people in this country who, who believe in, you know, the, the good, good parts of our, of our legacy of freedom of speech and, um, you know, the, the right and, and the energy that you have of social change. Like I, I talked about at the beginning of our conversation, America is this lodestar of change that, uh, you know, not everybody always uh, agrees with, but it is a place where new, new ideas and new things still happen. And I think these anti-racism protests are a great example of that, that there is a health to, to the democracy that is kind of obscured by the, you know, poison of our national politics. There's still like this kind of special quality to American discourse that makes it a standard bearer because again, like people were cha- were marching in Brussels and London and Berlin chanting George Floyd's name because there's that energy here of, of, of protest and, and of, of, you know, self-expression. And I, I think that's something Americans should still, you know, treasure and, and, and be proud of. Right. I really liked that article and I thought it was, it was really heartwarming that, that the sheriff was stopping at the protests every day to sort of say hello and that he and the organizers, it seemed, had sort of started a relationship. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really heartening. In my area, there were some protests too. Um, and it's been really interesting to me to see like among my friends on social media who's attending the protests, mm. like one is like a 
very Catholic homeschooling family with a bunch of kids and they all went to one of the protests <laughs> and it's, there was a protest in my town and I, there was, you know, beforehand on social media, there was a lot of angst. I think people were really anxious about what was going to happen. Um, but by all accounts, it was very peaceful. It went fine. There were people there from both sides. For the most part, they were respectful. And the conversation after the protest was way more positive online than it had been beforehand. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, and when I was talking to some people and telling them like, oh, yeah, some of my really more conservative, uh, devout Catholic friends are going to these things, too. They were really surprised. I think I think the more of a diverse group that you see participating, the more approachable it seems to, you know, to everybody else. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure like what, what a great lesson for those kids. Right, right, exactly. So I'm curious though, you know, we're now a couple months out from that point and, uh, you know, looking more towards the election and I feel like positions are hardening a little bit. <laughs> and um, I feel like at first there was, it was like such a gut punch that people were thrown off kilter and they were maybe more willing to sort of reevaluate. And now as we're getting a little further away, I wonder if it's hardening a little bit. And I was just curious as to what you're seeing, especially with like your contacts out in West Virginia and Ohio and such. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, there is kind of, um, echo ecosystem of, you know, support for, for the president that does not seem to be piercing that you still have the, you know, kind of feedback loop of Fox news watching people who, who are not changing their minds. I mean, the, the pandemic has kind of burst that bubble a little bit because it's forced people to look at, you know, the truth of things a little more and, and, and they, um, you know, are, are living with a life or death situation. And so they, they know now when the, you know, when the, when the administration is lying about, you know, what's happening with COVID, they can tell if their neighbors are getting sick. So that that's, that's mm -hmm. kind of pierced that a little bit. Um, well, I, I did a story in the first week of March where I drove right before the pandemic, I drove from uh, Pittsburgh to uh, um, Iowa and interviewed people along the way for, for America magazine. Um, and I found that there was more support for Biden than I expected, um, particularly among among Bernie Bros. There was kind of this recognition they were going to take one for the team and and, and vote for Biden. So I, I think the Democrats are more united than people think. Uh, and I think you know the you know Trump's floor is still higher than you might think. I mean, it's still thirty five or forty percent. Um, but it's hard to see him, him winning, I think right now. I mean, the, the economy is not going to recover by November and, you know, there are still, uh, still increasing cases every day in this country. And, um, I think people do hold the administration responsible for how they've responded to, to the, the COVID crisis. So, um, that's my take for what it's worth. Yeah. My impression is that there are a lot of people who, um, I guess I'm coming from a more conservative perspective. So there are a lot of conservatives, I think, who, you know, have never been hot on the president. And I think this has really uh, thrown people off kilter and they're really 
questioning their support. So I, I think, I think there are a lot of people questioning. I think for the people who are not questioning, their heels have dug in more. So I think there are going to be a lot fewer third party votes in the coming election. I think that people are really going to feel more like they have to make a choice between the two. And, um, I don't know. I, uh, the stakes, I'm seeing the stakes both. feel big. Yeah. I'm seeing both. I'm seeing people who are like, oh man, I, I just can't do this Trump thing anymore. And I'm also seeing people who are digging in their heels, heels and, um, and maybe even who voted third party before, but are going to support him this time. So hey, I don't based know. on it's fear, be interesting. fear, fear of the Democrats <laughs> or because they, they, um, yeah, they think yeah. they support him on uh, a particular issue. I think fear of the Democrats, uh-huh. personally, not Biden so much as the left wing of the party. I think a lot of people think that um, Biden is just going to be a front. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I'm just kind of curious from your experience. So, you know, I think the, especially when it comes down to like little issues like masks (laughs) here in the U S the coronavirus pandemic, while it may have sort of initially united us in a common experience, it's also really driven a wedge into some of our divisions. Do you think it's doing something like this in Europe too? Or is this like an American phenomenon? Uh, I think that the libertarian spirit that drives that is very much an American phenomenon. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I grew up in Brussels, but there's things about America that I, I love because we didn't have them in, in, in Europe in Brussels and uh, you know, baseball is one of them, but this kind of, <laughs> of, you know, libertarian spirit of, you know, the government can never, you know, put a gun to your head and make you stay in your home. I obviously, you know, it, it doesn't work for a pandemic, but I, I do respect mm-hmm. it and I, I do kind of love it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like America is misbehaving for the, the right reason, but mm-hmm. I mean, the, the science is not going to, you know, for, give you a pass for that. Like, uh, you know, face masks do help prevent the spread and, and you know, hanging out indoors uh, makes people sick and, and you can't like, you know, no amount of, of fr- freedom will, will change that. <laughs> so uh, I think it's very much an American phenomenon. I think uh, authoritarian countries in Asia were able to um, limit the spread a lot more effectively, uh, and, and just countries that have a more top-down system of government. And, and they're smaller too. I mean, America is is a massive country. It's a very it's very underpopulated. I mean, it has it's the same geographic area as China, and it has a quarter of the number of people. So you have uh, this huge open space and, and this tradition of government non-interference and freedom. Uh, and I think that it's a federal system too. It's a, it's a federal system. And I think that's why it is inevitably was going to be, I think the administration's done a bad job, but inevitably I think it was always going to be worse here. Right. Yeah, no, I feel like I would not trade our individual liberties for, uh, you know, the top down system in China, but I do wish people would be a little bit more uh, community minded and like <laughs> active, actively trying to help others and to go back to your, <laughs> your your first point i mean it is hitting communities of color especially in cities a lot worse than it is people in the suburbs in this country right i keep thinking i i thought of that a lot too after george floyd's death i thought um in relation to the mask thing i thought okay this is hitting communities of color so much harder than it's hitting white communities 
if you're going to wear your mask for someone, do it for them. Do it for them and have that be part of your active reparation or your, or your giving of yourself and trying to make a, a healthier, more just community. I noticed that. I mean, one, one of my jobs is I, I work with, for a um, baseball club, which is in the suburbs, and it's mostly white families, and, and they're very cavalier about masks. And, and, you know, for them, like, they don't hang out indoors with strangers. They have family units, and they go outside and do sports and go back to their homes, and they, they don't really um, take risks. And so, you know, for them, it actually is relatively safe. And, and none of the families on my team have gotten sick yet, even though we've been playing baseball now for, for almost two months. So it, it very much feels like a, a urban problem. And I think mm-hmm. I think the, the data shows it is more more of an urban problem, but it doesn't mean it's not everybody's problem because the resources are, you know, it's everybody's resources that are being are being used. Right. Well, and it's also only an urban problem until it's not, you know, True. until people are being cavalier enough that. Have there been many many cases where you live? Yeah, there was a um, nursing home not far from us uh-huh. that was one of the big victims at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was just like over a matter of days, they had almost the whole nursing home was infected. And I think they lost nearly 100 people. So oh, wow. yeah, that was really bad. Other than that, my community has not been as hard hit. Though, of course, Maryland, I feel like Maryland's sort of in between like the New York's <laughs> and the rest of the country or the, the um, in that we had a big scare like they did in New York, but it wasn't as bad. So it sort of scared us enough, I think, for us to take precautions and like here you have to wear a mask in public. And so, I mean, everybody in a store is wearing a mask. Everybody in church is wearing a mask. I, I personally see a lot of compliance, but of course, I'm also personally mostly at home, so <laughs> I don't see everything. Um, so I think we've sort of benefited from that scare, but fortunately, we weren't quite as bad. Mm-hmm. So we've done pretty well, though numbers are starting to go up again. Um, so we'll see. Um, just as a final question for you, I'm curious as to how big you think this moment is. Like in my life, I think back to like the end of the Cold War and 9-11. And I'm thinking back to all these big moments. And this feels pretty big, but I want to know what you think. <laughs> I think it is. I mean, I, I'd say the economic part of it is just as important that we're going from one kind of economy to another where we're going to need new ways of distributing wealth and income that things like universal basic income are on the table now to, to compensate people for all the jobs lost to automation. So, I mean, the pandemic sort of forces the government's hand and that it's created a situation where there obviously, obviously has to be no strings attached cash for people. And it's already happened in, in this country in a way that it had never happened before. And so the, it feels like the like I think you were saying earlier that um, the the pandemic is a crisis on top of another crisis, and you know they always say that you know, always say that pe- people don't change until things get get so bad that you can't afford not to change. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think we're definitely seeing that. Uh, I think the next you know ten years are going to be pretty volatile, not just within countries but internationally. That um, mm-hmm. you know China really is going you know, on on its way to becoming a superpower who can rival the United States in a way that had, had, has never happened before, um, at least not not since the British Empire in, in the 19th century. And so uh, 
that's going to create a lot of tension. And um, as a bigger moment, um, yeah, I think this is akin to the end of the Cold War or the end of World War II. Uh, you're seeing the collapse of an order. I mean, I, I covered global trade for a long time, and you know, the World Trade Organization is um, barely relevant anymore. And countries are increasing tariffs, and you have a, a renationalization of, of manufacturing, and um, a lot of things are, are going to change in, in, in the same way. Um, and uh, you know what what happens in this country. Uh, still like steers steers the world so um you know it's important to pay attention and and to <laughs> understand mm-hmm. what's happening and, and cope the best you can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right well thank you so much for your time oh, that was I great really great appreciate it. great talking to you julie all right i hope you enjoyed that conversation with journalist and filmmaker john miller you can learn more about john and find links to his work at johnwmiller.org. And you can watch his film, Moundsville, which I have seen and I can highly recommend, on your local PBS station or through the website moundsville.org. I'll include links to both of those sites, as well as the articles John and I referenced in our conversation, in the show notes. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Kristen Urban, Professor Emerita from Mount St. Mary's University. Dr. Urban, who has taught a variety of courses related to international politics, has spent time in Israel-Palestine, Russia, Romania, Italy, Turkey, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. In 2003-04, she was a senior Fulbright scholar to Bahrain. Dr. Urban and I will be discussing the current state of the U.S. on the world stage, and will be reviewing the international developments that, since the end of the Second World War, have set that stage. Thanks for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.